obvious, right? Pray uh, the obvious. But you know, it's a day filled with a lot of emotion for us, isn't it? And some of us soar high on the wings of happiness, just knowing uh, that our moms are here with us or we get to love on them some way today. But I know it's a different experience and it's a sad day for some of us for, for a variety of reasons. I won't get into all that, but I know I think of my own father who is at uh, the bedside of his mother. Uh, you hear me talk about Mavis. She's over 100 years old and it could be uh, any day now. And so we, I just think of him and it's honestly uh, torturous for him in this moment now at, at the end. When I showed up on campus this morning before our 9.30 service, I bumped into a friend of mine, Steve, and I said, Steve, what's Mother's Day like for you? And he reminded me of a story that I hadn't heard in a while, that he lost his mom when he was 20 years old, and she was the glue uh, in the family. And so there's a, it's a day for some of us uh, in particular to feel the pain, to feel the sense of loss and that ache, and again, for others of us to love on those mamas and uh, wives who are mamas in a real special way. So Happy Mother's Day. Let me ask you a question as we began today in this uh, fear series as we're deep into it and almost done with it. But here's the question I have for you. Do you talk to yourself? Yes. <laughs> I know you talk back to me. I like that. I appreciate that. Do you talk to yourself? Remember when I was young, there was a movie with Jack Nicholson called One Flight Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Anybody remember that? And he was like the crazy guy. He plays it very, very well. But it, it, just a crazy guy. And he, uh, they demonstrated, manifested his craziness by... The fact that he talked to himself. But here's the thing. I'm glad we've evolved a little bit to know that, hey, all of us, in essence, talk to ourselves. We've got a a voice going on, a real playing, and we do. What I love about the Bible, and you're going to see this really clear today, what I love about the Bible is it doesn't airbrush its heroes, its models. If you see magazines, you'll see on the cover of those magazines, you'll see You'll see models. I know about modeling. A lot of you know I was one before I you know, went into the ministry. So Miami, New York, Milan, L.A., a lot of places traveled. God was good. But look, models are what? They're airbrushed, aren't they? When you see those magazines, you're not really seeing what's truly real. They remove blemishes. They've got the camera angle and the lighting, and they've scrubbed up some things and taken away some of the ugly, if I can say it. And it just all looks really, really good. The Bible, in fact, if I was writing a book that I wanted people to subscribe to be the Word of God and follow it with their whole hearts, I would like put just heroes in it who just didn't have flaws, who had it together, who didn't have to hit the lows. But the Bible doesn't do that. It doesn't airbrush its characters. The psalmist prayed in Psalm 42. He said this out loud. He was talking to himself, and he said, Why are you downcast, O my soul? He would repeat the same question the next chapter over, Psalm 43. Why are you downcast? So downcast, oh my soul. A famous book was written uh, many, many years ago called Dark Night of the Soul. Now think about it. The soul is the deepest part of the person. It's the place where you experience your greatest pain. No one says the darkest night of the mind or the darkest night of the will or the darkest night of the spirit. It's the darkest night of the soul. Why are you so downcast, oh my soul? Husband and wife are driving and the The wife looks over and she says, remember when we were dating and you would drive and you would have your arm around me and I would put my head on your shoulder and I just felt so loved and now I feel the distance. And the husband says, who moved? The dark night of the soul is when you feel like it is God who moved. God, where are you? You, You've moved. I can't find you. Why are you so downcast, oh my soul? Today in this fear series, Fear in the Age of Anxiety, we're going to go down into a valley today as we look at this um, 
subject, and it is tender, the subject of depression. I want you to bear with me today, and I will give just for a moment as we go to 1 Kings 19. If you have an open Bible turned there, we're not going to put it up on the screen, but you can hear my voice as I read it or, or um, turn in your Bibles and have it on your lap. But we're going to go to, in a moment to 1 Kings chapter 19. But I want to give us some parameters, maybe some perspective as we tackle a very tender subject because it hits close to home for a, a lot of us, and it is just fraught with misunderstanding. And I'm not a doctor, and I didn't sleep at a Holiday Inn Express. But I did call some of my best doctor friends and psychiatrists to get their take. I asked them a central question, several of them. If you were preaching this to a church, what would you say? So I want to give you some perspective in this and ask the question, what is the cause of depression? What, what is it exactly? Is it, a, is, it a, is it a disease? Is it a mental disorder? Is it a brain malfunction? Is it an existential spiritual crisis? Is it some sort of psychological syndrome? What is it? We know there's a variety of causes when it comes to depression. And I want you to think of this perspective. On the left, I want you to think about beliefs and behavior. And this is the, the way of thinking about it that, of course, is very spiritual. Uh, you'd expect this perspective that you're going to get today from a pastor. And the beliefs and, per, per, beliefs and behavior perspective is... There's a lot that we can do when we're down. When we're in a valley, when we're struggling with low points, there's a whole lot that we can do to get out of that valley. We can move forward with joy. There's some wrong things that we're thinking, some improper ways we're acting, and it's caused some depression in our spirit. It's made us low. Why are you so downcast, oh my soul? But on the right end of the spectrum is body and brain. And this is that important perspective that it's not you there's something that's happening inside of you and I love where we've grown as a society you hear me say often all truth is God's truth and science and medicine has brought us it's ushered in a lot of understanding and a lot of truth in this area and so I want to quickly say without going any further I am today going to talk about from the Bible beliefs and behavior and some important things with this man named Elijah but I do want to say that that for some of us, we really do need to reach out and we need help. There's something about that's happening inside of us that doctors and people can help us with, okay? And so it's not a sign of weakness or spiritual immaturity to get that help. Can I tell you that today? So look, look at these questions. One of my uh, friends in psychiatry, uh, a Christian friend, uh, brought my attention to this. There's three questions that you can ask that can help guide you in where your pain is or understanding a, a depressive state that you could be in now. The first question is this, are you harboring, I love that word, are you harboring any known sin, bitterness, alcohol abuse, lying, hiding, or faking? The psalmist David prayed when he was in sin and it was at a point of unconfessed sin. Do you remember this in Psalm 32 in verse 5? He says, my body wasted away. My body wasted away, my strength was sapped. Now doctors today tell us that that aching bones are a symptom of depression. My body wasted away. My strength was sapped. Low energy levels, the same doctor will tell you, when you have low energy levels, it is also a symptom of depression. Sin has its effects. When you and I hide ourselves, when we keep secrets, when we live with the fear, and so we're, what, week five or six in this fear Series and I have received some messages from you 
from some of you and your fear is being found out. You can do something about that. You can do something about that. Humans are not designed to carry guilt. Second question you can ask, are there any false beliefs about God or unrealistic expectations of yourself that you struggle to relinquish? One of my favorite books is by theologian A.W. Tozier. He says, your God is too small. And he traces that so many of our ills and ailments, so many of our problems, and I would say depression, is because we have a low view of God. We put God in a drawer. We have a manageable deity. We think we have him figured out, and it's a low view. In fact, he's serving us. We're not serving him. And it can lead to a lot of the downcastness, the why are you so downcast, oh, my soul. It can lead to to depression. For some of you, unrealistic expectations, look, For some of you, it's perfectionism. Can I say that perfectionism is exhausting? And it's no fun. And nobody wants to be around an exhausted perfectionist. It's terrible. Can I say that? It's just terrible. And it is leading, for some of you, it could be right now in this moment, a real big indicator of your depression. Third question is blank. Are there challenges or changes in your life which would make the level and duration of your depression an appropriate emotional response? You'll want to look at that again. That's a, that's a mouthful, isn't it? Again, you're, I'm dealing with doctors here. Here's the thing. This is very circumstantial. This is very circumstantial. If you're in a season of transition, if you've experienced a loss or you've entered into a very stressful time, or you have some Herculean task before you, you just don't seem to have the resources to tackle, that leads to anxiety, it leads to fear, it leads to depression. So you've seen these three questions from reputable thinkers. So what I'm asking is your pastor to do to give us some understanding with beliefs, behaviors, brain, and body, is if you ask these three questions, if you ask them honestly, and if you're struggling with depression, sadness, You need to ask them ruthlessly. But as you deal with them honestly and ruthlessly, listen, if it's adequate, then you probably need to consult a professional. You need help. And don't be afraid to reach out for it. So depression, it's very real. Why are you so downcast, oh my soul? Before we read this verse, I want to give you some context. We're going to read on a man named Elijah. I had a friend tell me yesterday, hey, I might come to Fondren Church today. What are you preaching on? He said he was choosing between two churches. And I said, oh, we're, you know, we're preaching on depression. He goes, well, look, if I do come, what's the, like, what's the character? What's the big Bible character with depression? Do you know that you'd have to choose because there are several? You know, Elijah gets to a point where he wanted to take his life. You know, Paul said, I'm overcome by despair. I don't know if I can make it. You know, obviously, Job thought that way. You know, Jonah thought that way. The list goes on. No airbrushing in the Bible. No airbrushing. This is real raw honest stuff. Why are you so downcast, O oh my soul? Here's Elijah, and hear this. This is a sermon in and of itself. Maybe we should close the book and go home, but Elijah had his great victory. He had just routed the enemy armies like he was outnumbered, and he had his great victory. As some of you know, on Mount Carmel, he was, I mean, big time win. And after that win, he's thinking, hey, I, he led by the Spirit. He was able to outrun the the chariots of the the king, the the spineless jellyfish, wimpy king Ahab. 
and he gets to this place of Jezreel, and he's thinking, hey, I'm going to be able to rest on my laurels. No, that, that, that man has a wicked witch of the West wife. Um, you've heard about her, and she is, she is, we'll read about her in just a second, but she kind of ran the show, and he's thinking they will repent or they'll be deposed, and I'll be able to kind of chill. I'll be able to be, live in a nice house, a little R&R next to the king's palace, and people will come to me for advice. I'll be a consultant. You, you know any consultants? They make a lot of money, real cushy job. People just come to them, and they tell them what to do, and that's sort of what he was envisioning about his life, but not so fast, my friend. Something else happened, and you'll see what is true. You'll see what some of you may already know, that your lowest point can follow your, your biggest victory, that you can go from a mountain to a valley really fast. First Kings chapter 19, let's read it. I'm going to roll through it pretty fast-like. Verse 1, Elijah flees our gal Jezebel. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the, as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid. That's our sermon series. Then he was afraid and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I'm no better than my father's. And he lay down and he slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went, into the, and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mount of God. Verse 9, there he came to a cave and he lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for people, the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant. They've thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left and they seek my life to take it away. And he, said, and he said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke it in pieces, the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I've been very jealous for the Lord. Notice the repetition. I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel, forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I, only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazel to be king over Syria. Here's this great victory that this man experiences, and then such great loss. Elijah has a few things happen to him that I think are common in us. I want to say three things about Elijah and his actions, his response, his beliefs and behavior, and then how God ministered to him in these deep needs. The first is true of us. You lie about your worth. Here in verse 4, he gets to a place where he says, take away my life. 
One of my friends in psychiatry that I met with this week was wrote down a little sort of a graph, if you will, and he was talking about the different types of, of depression. And he said, at one level, there's a disappointment. When you're disappointed, you've suffered a loss, uh, you grieve, your heart is sick, there's an ache to it, there's disappointment. Then he said there's discontentment. That's when it lingers, when you brood over it and bitterness forms. You're just, you don't seem to be able to get over it. You're just discontented and it leads to a lot of irritability, a lot of bad. You're discontent. Songs don't sound as good. That steak that you're cutting into doesn't taste as well. The people around you that need you, that count on you, they don't get your full attention and presence because you're discontent. So there's disappointment and discontent. But deeper than both, there's despair And despair we see here in this prophet Elijah. He gets to a point where he says, I don't know if I can make it. I want to check out. I can't get over this. And even another level, my friend was telling me, an expert, he said that there's a level called destructiveness. That's even greater than despair. And that's when it builds and it builds. And this I don't want to be here builds up so much that there's hostility. That it can lead to a despair manifested in suicide and even homicide and this is real stuff as a pastor I have done funerals where this has been true and it's so hard it's hard for me I can't imagine and it's hard for me because it's so grievous for the family for the loved ones so here are these levels and you see Elijah this is not just a little disappointment this is not some wave of discontent that he can shake over time. This is some deep despair that he's dealing with to the point where he is right on the edge of destructiveness. So he does what we do, lie about your worth. A second thing that can happen, we can compare ourselves to others. He says in this verse, and this was so random and unnecessary here. This is not some Hebrew rhyme or rhythm or whatever. This is just random. I'm no better than my father. Why are you comparing? Why why do you bring others into this? And can I say that when you lie to yourself, when you compare yourself to others, it leads to a lot of deep sadness, and it is a contributing factor to depression in our day. Do anybody, any of you compare yourself with other people? You know, it's, it's only getting worse. Dude on the front row is not afraid to raise his hand. That's my guy right there. Like, he's not alone, is he? I just bought a book. Hadn't read it yet. Bought it yesterday. It, forward by John Piper. 12 things your phone is doing to you. I can't wait to read it. Like, it's going to be good. I just, I just skimmed it, but it's going to be convicting. 12 things your phone is doing to you. And you know, we have a portal into the world where we can compare and compare and compare. Anybody struggle with comparison? My oldest son and I last night, we heard a party. And apparently we weren't invited to the party, but we heard noise that was coming from sort of our backyard. And we looked over the fence and across the creek and we noticed there's neighbors who have a swimming pool and they were having a party. Lights were strung out. Now we have a, we have a pool. Uh, it's real modest pool. I don't want anybody to think, you know, we're living extravagantly or we have extra homes or, you know, lots of fancy cars or anything like that. Just a little bitty swimming pool. Okay. I know some of you are like, I'm not going to give any money if a preacher's got a swimming pool. (laughs) But what, what, what my son and I noticed is they were having fun and we thought, man, they have a pool and friends. We just have a pool. 
And we stood up on the back of my truck. We both did. We looked over. You know, I thought, we're committing several sins here, right? All in one fell swoop, you know, peeping Tom, you know. But, like, do you, do you compare yourself? Y'all, when I was in second grade, I, I can remember way back. And that's what comparison does. You can remember things like this. When I was in second grade, this was in the 70s when teachers could just abuse children. And my second grade teacher, I have a sister who's a year older. Y'all know that. Her name is Gina. She's one year older than me. And I have a, we, we took, in second grade, we took a standardized test that apparently they repeat year after year. And the teacher in this class, when I took the test, the results were in. She put my sister's score up on the blackboard and my score up. And she said aloud in front of the class, you didn't, and my, my score, by the way, was considerably lower. And she said, why can't you be like your sister? And I thought, I got mad, by the way. Can I just tell you? I got mad. But this is what's weird. I didn't get mad at the teacher. Guess who I got mad at? My sister. And I thought, you know, she probably deliberately did well on that test to show me up. I called her a few weeks ago. In fact, she did deliberately do well on that test just to show me up. Do you ever compare? And listen, let's stay in the classroom. Comparison is good. Every teacher in the room who doesn't abuse their children and shame them publicly, you know, teachers, right, that comparison is a good thing. Children learn by comparison, don't they? This shape is not like this shape. This box is bigger than that box. The cheetah is faster than the turtle. We learn things like that. My kids learn, hey, there are better deals on Mother's Day at Dollar General than there are at Anthropology, right? We compare, and comparison is, comparison is good sometimes. It teaches children, it teaches us to learn, but mostly comparison creates loss. Because when you, when you do that, when you get to a place like we see, I'm no better than... But isn't that, isn't that us? Isn't that the human condition? We live in comparison. It's just so natural. So not only do we see him lying about his worth, we do. Not only do we, do we see him comparing himself to others, we do. But lastly, we see him exaggerating his problems. Do you ever do that? He exaggerates his problems. We're going to talk about this in just a little bit. But the, the essence of that is I'm the only one left. So here's how Elijah, his beliefs and behavior leads to his depression. But here's how God ministers to him. Now, if we think that depression is spiritual, then what do we do? We slap people around and we shake them and we say, get to church. Get to small group. Learn the Bible. Say your prayers. Do right. But it's more than that. If we, if we think that depression is just brain-body, if it's just physical, then we're like, we discount other things and we forget that we're psychosomatic. We forget that we're body and we're soul interlocked together. So God ministers three ways that are very important. I love this and I, he calls the church to understand this and follow him in this. God ministers to him physically by telling him, don't you love this, to take a nap. And I noticed in the 9.30, some people already were applying this part of the sermon. But can I tell you that there are times when what you need is not a verse. It's not a spiritual slap in the face. You need a nap. And I love this because what we see in this is several points physically here. And the physical is important. I know some men my age, I'm sure there are women, but my men are typically friends. And I know some men my age who aren't doing well in this area. 
And listen, when I was young, I treated my body like a, like a rental car with unlimited mileage. And you know what I notice now? I can't do that anymore. And what one of my doctor friends told me over the phone a couple of days ago is that rest and exercise and sleep is not just healthy lifestyle choices. It is how your body regulates itself and your mood and all that. You see what I'm saying? So, in, and we have, when it comes to this, exercise, diet, sleep, we have neglectors and we have obsessors. You may know where you fall in this category. And neither are healthy, but it's really important sometimes to know what we need. And here is our good God ministering to a man in a very depressive state, and he wants to minister to us in this way take a nap. And we see an angel of the Lord comes to Elijah. Now, Susan and I set up here a few weeks ago, my wife and I, we said that 366 times in the Bible, God, Jesus, or an angel tells us, do not fear. Now, Jesus is the son of God and angels were sent from God. Now we have some, a lot of misunderstandings about angels and God intends for us to have mystery about them. But angels in the Bible were messengers. They were messengers sent by God. We typically think an angel is, well, something, something kind of, you know, with wings and floats around and just, go, do, just doing its own thing and reports back to God what it did. And God's like, oh, okay, good. Could you tell them that? But messengers in the Bible are sent by God with a specific message from God. And this angel gives touch. This angel says, here's some food. This angel says, take a nap. And notice what the angel did not say. The angel didn't say, here's a Bible verse, here's a John Piper book, show some faith, snap out of it. Touch, hug, nap, and oh, by the way, this is really cool, vacation. He actually, the angel actually tells Elijah, there's a, there's a mountain home, there's a cabin home. Go and enjoy that. I wish I had a cabin home, mountain home. If y'all do, just, you got my number. We'd love to use it this summer. But look, we need, right, we need to take care of ourselves Physically, we need rest. And look, a lot of us just are violating this. And it's, I'll just say it, it's a sin. It's a sin not to honor. It's a sin not to honor the Sabbath. Right before I married my Susan years ago, my mentor told me, he said, Robert, do these three things. This was long ago before we had text messaging. But he said, dial daily, date weekly, depart annually. In other words, have a rhythm. Be in rhythm with the one that you love and make sure because you're not, a, you're not structured, make sure you have that structure and it flows from your heart. Every day, call her. Every week, take her out. At least once a year, do something she'll never forget. How good is that for a marriage? Can I tell you? It's pretty good. It's really good. Have I been perfect? No. Did I say I was perfect at the 930 when she wasn't in the room? Yes. But look, I failed in this, but it has been a pretty consistent rhythm in us to think about what we need daily, what we need weekly, and over and above. And that, what's true in a relationship, if it's going to flourish, if you're going to water the garden of your love life, then that needs to be true to an extent in you. You've got to figure it out on your own, but you need rhythms. It can't be random. It can't just be random. That'll get you six months into it. And then you've got to get into some rhythms. And what's true here is true here. I made a commitment years ago to spend an hour, at least an hour, in prayer and rest and reading every day. And once a week, make sure I have a day of rest. And make sure that I get away. For me, it's a time of prayer and planning where we plan sermon series and some ministry things. And just spend some time uninterrupted in a place far away just to rest in Him. It is so vital. And a lot of leaders in the church are not doing well. 
And what I've learned is that I'm the only one that can say no for me. And if you don't have a Sabbath, if you're not getting rest, if you're not honoring God in your body with diet, exercise, and sleep, repent. Do all that you can do to submit in this area. God ministers him physically by telling him to take a nap, praise God. God ministers to him psychologically by letting him talk it out. Isn't that good? To be able to talk it out. There's a book in the Bible called Lamentations. You know what that is about? If you lament, what do you do? Anybody know what it means to lament? It means you, you, you let your pain out. You release what's hurting inside of you, and it's, it's pretty raw. I'll never forget being in a group, a small group with people, men and women, and a woman blurted out. She said, I want to talk to Jesus if he thinks suffering on the cross is equal to 42 years of being a single. Now, when she said that, it was like, whoop, let's fall back on our Christian cliches. All right, what do we say there? Whoop, I mean, discontent, close to despair for her, shared something raw, and everybody like, let's, let's throw out a pious platitude and move on. Because that, that was really raw in that moment. And can I say this? When you have a complaining spirit, listen to the contrast. When you have a complaining spirit and you talk to other people, that's called gossip. When you have a complaining spirit and you talk to God, that's called worship. And you say, how? You're trusting him. You're trusting him that he's big enough and he's good enough to hear your complaint. Read the Psalms. They're awfully salty. And you and I, we have that. Twice. Twice God asked Elijah. Now hear this. When you and I ask a question... Well, let me finish my statement. Twice God asked the prophet, why are you depressed? Why are you down? And every time you and I ask somebody a question, what do you do when you ask a question? You're looking for an answer. You're seeking information. God, when he asks a question, is never seeking information. It's that whole omniscient thing that he's got going on that you don't. And God asked Elijah the question, not to get information, but to let him express his feelings some of you say i don't do that well can i tell you learn can i tell you just take a step if if this is natural for you it's a good thing we we need to learn from you there's a whole group of people on the planet that struggle with this called men and here god is saying to a man in a cave i'm asking you a question And I'm asking you the question again, not to get something out of you, that information, but to get you to express your feelings and to tell me you can trust me. Thirdly, God ministers to him spiritually by telling him the truth. Everybody, I want to say to you, talks to themselves. Everybody, therefore, lies to themselves. A friend of mine once wrote this several years ago. He said, if you talk to your Friends, the way you talk to yourself, you wouldn't have any friends. And it gets ugly. Can I say? It just gets ugly. And here's where it gets a little tricky. Stay with me. It gets a little tricky because you don't just tell yourself blatant lie after lie after lie. You got some truth in there, right? And then with that truth, you throw in a little lie, and that's what anchors, and that determines the direction of your life if you're not careful. So in Elijah, here, here, look at these bullet points. Here's Elijah. 
I've only been zealous for you, true. The Israelites have rejected you, true. They have killed your prophets, true. I'm the only one left, false. And this may be for you today. Hey, here's what's going on. I lost this job. I lost this relationship. I'm struggling here. True, true, true. But there's a deeper lie that you could be telling yourself that's leading to your depression. And it's not true. Do you know the truth? If you know this story, you know that God had, Elijah didn't know it yet, but God had 7,000 people behind him. That's a great number. 7,000, that's, that's not alone. He just didn't know it yet. And Elijah had another prophet that was coming named Elijah who would, in many regards, be twice as great. He was not alone. And I think that can happen to us. And God knows I want to be honest enough today to tell you it happens to me. This isn't going well. This isn't going well. Look what happened here. Look at this struggle. Look at this sin. Look at this pain. Look at this burden. Look at this reality. And if you're my friend and you're listening to me negatively talk to myself, you, if you're being honest, you have to go true, 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 true. But at some point, we've got to help each other pick out the lie. That really big, fat, nasty, ugly lie that's leading to us being downcast. So here's what I want to say to you. Learn how to talk and be long-winded. Stop listening and start talking. My wife has never given me that advice, but I want to give it to you today. Stop listening to those lies and start actively talking. Will someone think you're crazy? Probably. But if you don't, it's, the Bible seems to indicate if you don't, if you don't talk to yourself regularly and often and be long-winded, you will go crazy. Replace those lies with God's truth. Talk to yourself. I want to close with a story about the soul. About a soul that went through a lot of fear and fright and anxiety. Written by one of my favorite pastors. He talks about a man named Dieter Zander who wrote a book called A Stroke of Grace. Dieter and I had worked together in a church He was an artist, a musician, and a teacher. This church was, at the time, the highest profile church in the country. And Dieter was its highest profile worship leader. He led worship with so much vigor that at times he literally left blood on the keyboard from cracked fingernails. He led with such energy that we actually had to stop doing certain songs because people in the balconies jumped around too much. And the facility engineers were afraid the whole thing would come down, a kind of joy-driven variation of Samson and the Philistines. Dieter loved the writings of Henry Nouwen, a Dutch-born Catholic priest and prolific author. I remember having a long discussion with him about Nouwen's reflections on a verse in the Gospel of John. Jesus told Peter that as a young man, stay with me, Jesus told Peter that as a young man, Peter had gone where he wanted, but when he was old, Peter would be dressed by other hands and and led to where he did not want to go. At the time, we were both young men. One night, when Dieter was in his late 40s, he began to shake violently. He suffered a massive stroke in the left hemisphere of his brain. When he woke six days later, he was no longer able to communicate as he had. He had to learn to say his wife's name, to say his son's names. He could no longer use his right hand, and therefore he could no longer lead worship. The music and words that flowed out of him were mostly trapped in his brain. He used to work on a stage before thousands of people who applauded his every move. Now he works in a windowless room in the back of a Trader Joe's grocery store. He breaks down boxes. 
When fruit is bruised, if a pear falls on the floor, when any product is no longer regarded as perfect, it is brought to Dieter. From him it will go to feed the hungry who do not care if their apple is lopsided. Dieter once wrote in a letter, quote, It is good that I work there. I am like that fruit. I am imperfect. Inside, I'm the same person, the same sense of humor, the same thoughts, but my words betray me. Could you imagine? What should take three minutes to say is an hour of frustration. People lose patience with me. It means aloneness. But God hears me. My world is small and quiet and slow and simple. No stage, no performance, but good. A year or so after Dieter's stroke, he and his wife Val visited my wife and I. He used a small whiteboard to help him communicate. Toward the end of our time together, he began to write a Bible verse. I knew which one it would be before he scribbled. John 21, 18. When you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead, where you, lead you where you do not want to go. Then below that verse, Dieter wrote, Whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well with my soul. Elijah wanted God to speak again with earth, wind, and fire, thunder, earthquake, tornado. But God chose the still, small voice. Because your life will not always be the same. And God will not always speak the same things and do the, the same things. His deepest concern for you and I is your soul. Anybody here today, can you say, it is well with my soul? Like no matter what you're going through, it is well. Would you stand? I'm going to pray for us. Father, I do again thank you, as I've mentioned to your people today, that you don't airbrush these guys. These women and these men are so raw and real to us. And God, we have fear and we have anxiety. And some of us are in a battle with depression. I think of my own friend a couple of years ago who was so bad, he had to call 911 because he was depressed. And I thank you that he's at a different place now. Lord, I pray that you minister to our souls. There's a dark night of the soul that's so real. And the account is that you don't just minister to us and change us when there's joy and light. But you do a work in us when there's grief and sadness and disappointment and loss. And God, I thank you. I thank you for body and soul. And that you minister to us physically. Lord, you minister to us spiritually, psychologically. Lord, I pray that we would receive. 